Welcome to Stupsin. Stupsin is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupsin, you can go to our website, stupsin.co.za, to find out how. Here at Poplar Grove at the moment, just to set the scene, it's getting warmer, the water pipes have unfrozen, there are little lambs being born, uh, there are horses breaking the gates, we're repairing all sorts of rooms for your next arrival, all of you. And, and we have cats and dogs, and we have people now, and we sit in the zendo every morning and evening. And last night, I woke up at about two o'clock in the morning, which sounds very early, but as I'm past asleep by six, I've already had eight hours sleep. So I trundled off to the kitchen to make my first coffee of the day. And when I do that, I do two things. One is I turn on the radio and I see whatever music's on. My radio sits in the kitchen. We can get reception there. And what also sits here in the kitchen during winter is my acoustic bass because it's the only warm room in the house and it's good for the instrument. So we take our chairs, put it in here in the place of honour. And at two o'clock in the morning on the Afrikaans service, they're playing wonderful country music. And it's music that I can play along to. So I stand here with my bass and the little portable radio in the windowsill. And I play along to very sentimental three-chord country songs uh, from, from South Africa or from the States. And uh, even I can manage them. And then they moved from country music to some discussion and in Afrikaans radio in the middle of the night, you hear the most wonderful things. Uh, there are rebroadcasts of, of talks and there are sort of phone-ins from, from people who are on night duty, nurses on night duty, doctors on night duty, just my, my heroes during this pandemic. And, uh, and truck drivers, truck drivers, so fascinating. <laughs> Anyway, so last night there was a talk about people leaving South Africa and, of course, a lot of opinions about it. Things are falling apart and we must get out and, and complaints and all of this sort of thing. And then someone called Marty from Postmasburg phoned in. And Postmasburg, for those that don't know it, is an isolated little town in the middle of the Northern Cape which used to have an iron ore mine, uh, and that's pretty much closed down. And 
It's a pretty desperate little town. And Marty from Postmasburg phoned in to say, this land just breaks my heart. And sometimes it makes me so cross, I throw things at the wall, she said. But this country is a wild horse and I'm going to ride it, she said. At which point I just laughed and cried, <laughs> as one does at half past two in the morning. And I thought of this life as a wild horse. And it really feels like that sometimes. And it's so wonderful to hear such an array of responses to our life. And we know them all. They're all voices, I beg your pardon, they're all voices that we have. Uh, we complain sometimes, we moan, sometimes we feel desperate, sometimes we weep, and sometimes we climb on this wild horse and just go for it. And that reminded me of my wife taking our elderly friend to the hospital, riding the wild horse, regardless of what anybody thought. And it also reminded me of uh, the Vimalakirti Sutra. <laughs> this sounds like my educational slot. Uh, I've recently decided to try and read some of the old Mahayana Buddhist sutras, which are an astonishing piece of, of uh, literature, spiritual literature. And I think there's a connection in what I'm saying. Whether it'll appear, we'll have to see. But the Vimalakirti Sutra was one of a number of, of sutras that were written about a hundred years before and after the time of Jesus in, in Galilee, which gives us a sense of the timing. And it really was, to simplify things, a, a movement from the early Buddhist traditions, which was highly monastic and which was very disciplined, had a strong sense of uh, uh, monastic order and commitment to the to the to the discipline of, of monk monastic life, uh, aiming at enlightenment. And after about 500 years, these other sutras started appearing, which were essentially a development in non-dualism, what we now call non-dualism. And... The, the non-dual tradition was very strong in India around that time, and it arose in the Buddhist mon monastic universities of the time. And as some of you know, it eventually fed back into the, the indigenous, what we now call Hindu traditions of India, and formed part of the Advaita Vedanta tradition that, that we know of today. But this was the basis of the Buddhism that moved into China and Tibet and from there into East Asia and, and into the West. 
Anyway, that's a brief background. But the Vimalakirti Sutra is interesting in a number of ways. One is that it concerns a lay person. He was the first anti-hero, really, uh, Vimalakirti. He was a, a successful householder, businessman. He had lots of children and grandchildren. He uh, frequented bars, brothels, and gambling places. And uh, he was a good sportsman. It was a kind of a boy's own story. And there is that quality of it. And the sutra is written in the style, almost, of early Buddhist suttas. Um, very repetitive, very slow-moving. But it also has these elements, as I say, of the boy's own hero, which is Vimalakirti, and, and the kind of fantasy of these, of these later Buddhist writings. Worlds and cosmic epochs and galaxies and universes and people appearing and disappearing in their hundreds of thousands. And... It's a bit like a sort of Chinese martial arts movie where people fly through the air and suddenly appear and suddenly disappear, grow small and grow tall, and sort of Alice in Wonderland stuff uh, on steroids. So there is that theme. There's also a kind of medical theme which I thought of in the night which kind of seemed to fit. It's also to do with with great compassion. And the, the story is set, interestingly enough, in the garden of a famous courtesan uh, in India, begins there. And the Buddha, who's now a kind of celestial character, and his early disciples, who are kind of the fall guys in this, in this sutra. And it's actually quite a funny, funny document. Because they, they send up the early Buddhists enormously, uh, rather affectionately, but a bit mischievously. And the Buddha hears that the great layman Vimalakirti is, is ill. And he, he asks his disciples, uh, Sariputra and Ananda and Kasyapa and people like that, uh, who's going to visit Vimalakirti to see how he is? And one by one, they all refuse. No, says Sariputra, I, I, I can't go and visit him because the last time I was trying to teach some people, he came and interrupted me and showed me up and all the people got enlightened except me and I was just speechless. It's that sort of style that goes on the whole time where, where these famous monks following the discipline and, and being very uh, uh, committed Buddhists um, are just shown up for being, for being something else. And in all the stories, as the Buddha goes from disciple to disciple, they all refuse to go and visit Vimalakirti because Vimalakirti is so wise that he embarrassed them in front of thousands of people who all got enlightened except the except the older disciples. And 
it's difficult not to feel for these these guys, these disciples who whose whole life had been given for this practice. And everyone else seemed to be getting enlightened except them. That, and that's how we all are sometimes. Anyway, there's this mixture of great sympathy one feels for them uh, and, and a kind of sense of what, why can't they go and visit the man who's sick? And then the scene switches to, uh, I beg your pardon, before it switches, eventually the Buddha persuades Manjusri, who's now the, the figure of wisdom uh, in the Buddhist tradition. And Manjusri eventually agrees. And he goes off to see Vimalakirti, who's lying in his sick room in this 10 foot by 10 foot room. And all the disciples traipse along behind Manjusri in a slightly shy manner and, and, and wait to get in. And Vimalakirti lies there. And eventually Manjusri goes in, all the other disciples come in, and something like 32,000 others come in. And, and eventually they get given thrones to sit on. But the disciples, the, the old monastic disciples, are too short. They can't fit on these chairs. The chairs are about three miles high. So they, <laughs> they have to sort of jump up and down and climb up chair legs in order to get on these thrones. It's this sort of fantasy world. It's really quite fun. Eventually, Manjusri, uh, the crowd settles, and there are gods and beings all over the place, disciples, Buddhas. And Manjusri asks Vimalakirti about his illness. What kind of illness do you have, says Manjusri. And Vimalakirti says, I am sick because the world is sick. I am sick because the world is suffering. Uh, they don't talk about COVID. They don't talk about the state of his liver. They talk about his compassion. And that gesture of compassion is what underlines the whole sutra and the whole Mahayana Buddhist tradition. Of course, there are many other aspects to it, I don't want to go into that now, but the initial response of as long as people are unhappy, I am unhappy. That's the, the, that's the impulse from which our tradition comes. And it's just so beautiful to remember that. Of course, there are other aspects 
uh, of it as well. There are, um, as I said, there's this humour throughout the, 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 the tradition, and maybe the humour and the compassion go together. There's a kind of lightness about it that's, that's necessary. And uh, poor Shariputra, the, the, the initial uh, disciple, keeps on asking where, when he first comes into the room, he asks, where's the chair? There are no chairs here. And Vimala Kirti says, are you interested in the Dharma, the truth, or do you just concern yourself about chairs? And he has this sort of dialogue and they go along. But eventually uh, all sorts of beings appear and Vimala Kirti has this, uh, he, he gives teaching from his sickbed. The, the other aspect that I, th I think is, is, is so important for us is the fact that um, Bimala Kirti was a lay person. We have a, a, a monastic mythology, really, in, in Buddhism, uh, understandably. Uh, I have it myself. I've been a monk myself. But the fact that when compassion becomes the guiding impulse for our spiritual practice, when that happens, the distinctions between monastic life and lay life inevitably uh, fall apart and in this uh, non-dual life in this in this life where we take the world as it is in all its pain and difficulty in all its um, humor and delight and joy the 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 kind of structure of the practice or the imagining of the practice begins to change. That although there's always a place for monastic style retreat, our life as it is, is where we practice. And inevitably then the hierarchies of, of monastic life uh, begin to, to alter, to fade and to, to frazzle at the edges. And most of us here today are, are lay people. And however much respect we have for monastic tradition, and I do, I love it. I'm... I'm I'm deeply uh, touched by people who give their lives to live something very simple and committed. Always. But the terrain of our practice now begins to broaden and include wherever, our, wherever we find ourselves. So that enlightenment is not something that 
we try to find in a particular situation that is, is, is not ours. That enlightenment, whatever that word means, is right here, right here in your listening and my talking, in the, the simple act of friendship, of sitting together, of visiting someone, a friend who is sick, of visiting, looking after anybody who is unhappy or well, unwell, or lonely and dispirited. And this is the, the wild horse that we are given to ride. And the question is not, should I have this kind of life or that kind of life? The question is, am I willing to get on the back of this wild creature and see where it takes me? Bareback. And I think what, what, what interests me about uh, the practice of lay people is that it often feels so difficult. We often feel as if we are drowning. And discouragement uh, is at our shoulder all the time. And because certainly in our time, uh, in, in my life, uh, I suspect always was the case, but it, it feels to me as if the life that we live is very strongly culturally, politically, socially, uh, strongly uh, centered around the life of self, individual self. The needs and problems and desires and terrors of our self. And that is, it feels to me often so dominant that it, it feels hard to live here. And that, that reality is, is, is very dominant. But of course, we also know that there is more to ourselves and our lives than the life of self. It's a basic philosophical position of, of Buddhism and it's a basic spiritual position. That in our practice we begin to see that the me that we identify with so strongly is but a part of this wider life. 
and that once we begin to just relax with into or relax from whatever the word is <laughs> uh, the the endless talking that goes on inside our heads and the conceptualizing and the verbalizing and the opinions and positions and arguments and the relentless sort of barrage of information and opinion and policy and so on. Once we begin to find that we are more than that, then the grip of that self-life begins to soften. That is our practice. And we realize as we do that, that, that our life is broader and deeper and that that is also part of ourselves and that even though it may be less familiar, it is no less compelling. We, we find it in, in moments of inspiration where a person or a, an incident or an event just inspires us. And, and we know that deeply. And we'll never be able to articulate that properly, whatever the word properly means there. We can't articulate it, we can't understand it from the small self. But we begin to be willing to acknowledge that part of ourself and know that that's real. That's part of our reality. And the practice or any religion or spiritual tradition seems to fulfill a role between the life of self and the life beyond self, the non-dual life. And for me, that's why practice, including this wonderful meeting we're having this morning, uh, is, is absolutely necessary in my life. To just be reminded as often as I can that this world is more than what happens inside my head. And when that happens, our response is one of great intimacy with this world. Our response is like Vimalakirti. If you are unhappy, I am unhappy. And that unhappiness is not the contracted 
victimized unhappiness of the small self, but just an expression of the intimacy that we have with this world. It is the wild horse. It is looking after each other. It is being clear. It is laughing with friends. It is sitting quietly and being willing to stop. And to use the words of the late, great uh, Suzuki Roshi, breathing in, I am not entangled in the inner world. Breathing out, I am not entangled in the outer world. So thank you so much for coming to sit with us this morning, for sitting so patiently and affectionately, and for this opportunity to practice together. <laughs>